Good afternoon. You are listening to KFSK News for Tuesday, December 12th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg School District Finance Director Shannon Baird will present a revision of the 2024 budget to the Petersburg School School Board tonight. The district under-budgeted this year. That's partly because the district makes a habit of being financially conservative. It's also because the number of students enrolled in the district went up. The state of Alaska gives school districts money per number of enrolled students, something called Base Student Allocation, or BSA. When the district made its budget last year, it didn't factor in any state funding beyond the standard BSA. The state legislature passed a one-time funding increase to school districts. While Governor Mike Dunleavy cut that funding increase in half with a line-item veto, it was still money the school district had not counted on. The district also has a lot of grants this year that are covering operational costs that would normally come out of the general fund. Finance Director Baird is recommending that the district carry forward the money not allocated in the budget as a beginning balance for next year. The money can also be used for unexpected expenses, and Baird says it's good practice to have at least one month's operating costs available. Also on the school board's meeting agenda, the middle school robotics team will present on competing at the first Lego League Challenge in Juneau this weekend. Participants build and program small Lego robots that then compete in challenges. Each year, the event centers around a different theme. This year, competitors imagined new ways to create and communicate art around the world. The school board will meet in the middle and high school library at 6 p.m. tonight. The meeting will be broadcast live on KFSK, and a link to the agenda can be found on the community calendar at kfsk.org. And KFSK will also host Campus Connection. That's a conversation with school officials at 12.30 today, just after Midday Magazine. You can call 907-772-3808 to participate in that conversation. The National Weather Service has issued high wind and flood watches for Southeast Alaska communities from Juneau down to Ketchikan. Meteorologist Grant Smith says several storms will pass over the region early this week, bringing heavy rain and strong wind. What we're looking at is just a series of strong uh, low-pressure systems moving into the Gulf that are going to be swinging in from the south uh, over the panhandle. A flood watch is in effect through tomorrow morning for nearly every community in the region, including Juneau, Gustavus, Sitka, Wrangell, Petersburg, Ketchikan, and Prince of Wales Island. Storms will also bring warmer temperatures, which could melt snow that's accumulated over the last few weeks. Together, rain and snowmelt can cause flooding in low-lying areas. But Smith says lakes, rivers, and streams are unlikely to overtop their banks. Rivers are on the lower side, so that might be uh, working in our favor. Strong winds are also expected in some places. A high wind watch will be in effect today and tomorrow for Skagway, Juneau, Ketchikan, and Prince of Wales Island. Wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour could bring tree falls, power outages, and other wind damage. Ann Smith said the combination of intense rain and wind means that isolated landslides are also possible on steep hillsides. The Coast Guard has recovered the wreckage of an Air Station Sitka helicopter, which crashed last month near Petersburg, but it could take up to eight months to learn what happened. In a news release, the Coast Guard reports that the aircraft was removed from the shore of Reed Island last week. Now the M60 Jayhawk is on its way to North Carolina for an inspection as part of a larger investigation into what caused the crash. On November 13th, 
the air station Sitka crew were responding to a mayday from a fishing boat that was taking on water in Farragut Bay, about 20 miles northwest of Petersburg. The skipper of the boat had brought the flooding under control by the time the helicopter arrived. However, something went wrong, and the helicopter crashed on nearby Reed Island. The two men on the boat came to the aid of the helicopter crew and supported them through the night with communications and supplies while awaiting emergency responders from Petersburg and a second helicopter from Air Station Sitka. All four crew members were medevaced to Seattle. One of them was serious, two of them with serious injuries. The Coast Guard says that all four crew members have returned home from the hospital and are recovering. Weather conditions were poor during the mission, with wind speeds of up to 40 miles per hour in the area and low visibility. The Coast Guard established a security zone around the crash site and began an investigation. On December 8th, with the help of the U.S. Army's downed aircraft recovery team, the Forest Service, the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation, Petersburg Fire Department, and Petersburg Search and Rescue, among others, they were able to retrieve the helicopter. In an email to KCIW, Coast Guard Public Affairs Officer Mike Salerno said the helicopter is being transported to Aviation Logistics Center in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where investigators will further examine the airframe. Salerno told KCAW that aviation experts from across the service have been investigating the crash, from collecting and examining the wreckage to interviewing all parties involved with the accident and reviewing environmental factors. Salerno said the investigation could take up to eight months. Ketchikan residents will no longer have access to cable television starting next fall. Ketchikan Public Utilities, the island's last provider, announced it would be ending cable services next year. KPU says that subscriber numbers have gone down and operation costs have gone up as people nationwide turn away from local TV and towards streaming services. Jack Darrell reports. It's a commercial longtime Ketchikan residents might recognize. Are you sitting at home wondering exactly how windy it is? Only KPU has the only truly local weather node located right here in Boston. The commercial is from 2010. KPU TV's Michelle O'Brien is standing on a beach in jeans and a windbreaker. Snow is flying past her sideways. The video quality seems grainy for something made just over a decade ago. But soon, cable commercials like this one are going to be even more of a relic in Ketchikan. By September of 2024, cable cords in every household will be cut. KPU Telecommunications announced on December 4th that they can no longer compete with providers offering video streaming services. Dan Lindgren is KPU Telecommunications manager. You know, when you have large companies, you know, Hulu, Hulu, you know, Netflix, YouTube TV, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them. They're all trying to increase their market share and just disrupting the, you know, the whole marketplace. But this, this transition's been in play for, you know, 10 years and it's kind of just accelerated in the last five. Lindgren has a cable box in his home. When asked if he's going to miss it, he doesn't get sentimental. No, no. I'm ready to I'm ready to completely transition for sure. There are many who aren't, though. Lindgren estimates currently about 20% of KPU customers are cable subscribers. He says he recognizes that this transition won't be easy for some, specifically the older demographic that may not be used to smart TVs and the overwhelming amount of streaming options available. Lindgren says they won't be left behind in the transition, though. Yeah. Everything we can to, to make sure that they, you know, have their video entertainment 
For Lindgren and KPU, it's not just that less people are tuning into cable TV, but that's getting more expensive to offer. You know, we just got to the point where, you know, it just doesn't make sense anymore. People who watch KPU cable do so on set-top boxes. Lindgren says that equipment is becoming obsolete faster and faster, and they can't replace every box on the island. This is in addition to more costly content and licensing fees. GCI, the other cable provider in Ketchikan, suspended service a couple years ago. Ketchikan's was the first cable system in the state. In October of 1953, cable television debuted in the Elks Club and a few bars around town. Anchorage got cable a couple months later. KPU TV didn't come along until 2005, though, according to Lindgren. When they did, they offered local programming, like the show Live in Ketchikan is the only show of its kind dedicated to our town. This is the television show that spotlights all that happens in and around Ketchikan. Live in Ketchikan is your resource. So tell me what's going on here, because everyone knows the tank, and you're, it looks like you're doing... This is from an episode in 2013. The host is getting a tour of an armored personnel tank owned by future borough mayor Rodney Dial. Local cable-based shows like this one are now a thing of the past. In a press release, KPU assured customers that it will still produce local content, such as high school sports, arts, cultural events, and other community-focused video content. They'll just be streamed exclusively on internet and mobile apps. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. Seika's culinary scene will be coming to television screens around the country this spring. Former child actor and film producer David Moscow recently visited, visited the island community to film an episode of his show, from scratch in collaboration with Beak Restaurant. Between Johnsk pulling bull kelp out of Sitka Sound and foraging for cranberries, Moscow sat down with Meredith Reddick to talk about food, foraging, and filming in Southeast Alaska. I produce and host a show called From Scratch. It is a um, a travel and food uh, documentary series, and we meet with a chef. Um, or somewhere around the world, they uh, make a meal. I taste it, figure out all the ingredients, go out and source all those ingredients, harvesting, hunting, fishing, foraging, come back, and then I have a week and try and remake the dish with the with the chef. Can you tell me about your experience hunting and fishing and foraging in Sitka so far? Well, so that's at the heart. I mean, I kind of went like high-minded, but at the heart of the show is the adventure of food sourcing. I'm here uh, working with Renee at Beak, Mm -hmm. and um, she made two incredible dishes for me. And as soon as I walked out the door, I realized, like, reality hit me. It is November in Alaska. Not a lot of green stuff in the ground. What am I going to get? And then it turned out that, like, one of the fish I couldn't even get because non-Alaskans can't harvest it this time of year. What was that? Uh, Rockfish. But... We had we heard rumors that were still there were still wild cranberries up in the bogs on the mountain, and then we had mushrooms, uh, and we couldn't find a guide to take me to go get the mushrooms. So for the first time on the show, I went, and I'm not a mushroomer, so I went by myself to try and find mushrooms, which was scary for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and 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 luckily, uh, we got some that were the right kind. And, uh, yeah, like the whole thing was kismet. First of all, you know, Beak is an incredible restaurant. Sitka is a, a gorgeous town, an incredible place. Like, this is a food destination, right? So you weren't allowed to harvest rockfish because of regulation. What did you end up with? Well, people have to watch it. 
maybe I got it, maybe I didn't. Maybe. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. We did the scariest moment was we went out for bull kelp on two little boats in, like, I don't know what was going on with the water at that point, but the swells were, like, nine feeters. Like, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. And we had, it was uh, professors um, from the college over here, and they are insane. These three women were wild. And, like, my crew was huddled on the bottom of the boat. (laughs) You said something about Sitka being a a food destination, and that surprises me because... You know, I think about our grocery store prices and I think a lot of people here subsist because it feels like there aren't a lot of options. But that's special, right? Like the fact that you can, that everyone has all winter long an insane amount of protein in their freezer. And um, and then you come to a place like Beak or a number of the other restaurants in town and they are using ingredients from right here mm-hmm. on their menus And so it's of the place, it's of the time, and it's interwoven. Is it accurate to say that food then is sort of a vessel for a bigger message you're trying to communicate? Yeah, I think it really was about sort of how community is tied together and and to show that we're all, that we all need one another. I think Americans sometimes think that, you know, I did this by myself. I'm on an island. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And it's frankly not true. Like, if you eat a slice of pizza, it took 68 people to make that pizza. So there is a web that... Is that a specific number? That's that, that when I made my pizza, it took 68 people to make it. There is a web of community that holds us all up and feeds us, like the most important of sustenance. And so, you know, one of the things we realized on this journey is that it's not just about community. Um, it's also about how we treat the planet. If we keep going in this direction um, around food production and around sort of pollution, um, we're going to have, we're in very serious trouble. Uh, and, and you see that in sort of food producers are at the front line of global climate change, of economic justice, of social justice. And, uh, and so it becomes clearer and clearer everywhere I go. For KFSK News, I'm Hannah Floor.